Welcome to another episode of NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar, brought to you by Neurite West. I'm Viet Nguyen, Clinical Assistant Professor of Neurology. Our hosts today are Ada Yi and David Lipton, neuroscience graduate students here at Stanford. Today our guest is Yerne Ule, Professor of Molecular Neuroscience at the University of College London. We'll be speaking with him about an RNA-binding protein called NOVA, switching from one good project to another great one, and linking a love of art to science. All of this and more coming up. We're here today with Yerne Uli, Professor of Molecular Neuroscience at the University of College London. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Professor Uli. Hi, Ada. Hi, David. So let's just start with your background. So could you tell us where you grew up and um, if you're interested in science as a kid? So I grew up in Slovenia, Ljubljana, which is the capital of a small country. And at the time it was Yugoslavia. And uh, I had a very normal, happy childhood And my parents are both academics, so I was exposed to lots of different um, conversations, mainly listening passively. I was exposed (laughs) to lots of things from art to humanities. They're both in humanities. I wasn't specifically interested in science until I studied biology. I must say I was much more into arts or humanities. Humanistics, writing, had very, very broad interests. Actually, I decided what to study by a throne of a coin in the end. <laughs> I had no idea. Literally? Yeah. <laughs> <Wow. laughs> <laughs> when I started studying biology, I was much more interested in ecology. or Because I was always out, I was gardening a lot and hiking a lot. And Slovenia is a very pretty country, so somehow you, you get connected to nature and so forth. So... I think when I started studying, I realized that to do something that will make an impact, that will change something, molecular biology was maybe a good thing. I was really inspired. I had some good teachers in that topic. So I only in the second year of my study somehow started going more into the molecular biology. And, and, and when, you, oh, go ahead. when you say change, you mean like the medical relevance? Initially, I wanted to do ecology, but then we had to decide for our kind of specialty within the biology within the second year, and at that time I decided for molecular biology. So this was a kind of a change that happened during that time, partly because I was turned away from people who were doing this kind of systematic classification of species and things like that. That was a bit boring, (laughs) whereas molecular biology sounded a bit more creative. We could see that there are some stories you could make with your work and describe something and so forth. Plus, I had an interesting experience. I went to San Francisco for three months in the summer, after my second year, and I worked with uh, Mattia Peterlin, who is at UCSF, and that was an amazing experience. I, I think science was a bit beyond me even at that time. Um, <laughs> I had absolutely no lab experience before that, so it was a big change and a big shock suddenly <laughs> to work in a big group and have people from all over world but uh, it was really exciting and just being in the city and you know having things happening around you I, I really wanted to do that again so that's great <laughs> yeah yeah you actually decided after undergraduate you decided to come back I guess to the U.S. Uh, to do your graduate school uh, at Rockefeller could you just before we get into the science of that time why did you decide to come back uh, I did actually have another choice I was considering also Cambridge UK I had a, a great option and um, it was a bit complicated for me because the system in UK is quite different from the States. In UK you have to apply to a specific lab and the deadlines tend to be somewhere quite early in the year. So whereas in the US the closing dates for most, most systems are somewhere in March, April. So I already had something worked out in Cambridge when I got this invitation to Rockefeller which came quite late. I think I was not in the first round of invitations. One thing I knew is I never wanted to live in New York. You know, I somehow I was turned away from the images of New York before even going there. As a New Yorker myself, I'll say I'm a little offended. <laughs> I hear you out. <laughs> I'm a bit offended by myself. Looking at you. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I said, okay, I'll go just for the heck of experience. But the moment I stepped 
into the city and saw the university and the campus, I was completely hooked. You know, it was like love at the first sight. But when I actually step into it and you see there's real people and lots of, you know, small little corners and every street has people taking care of their little flowers and tree and I, somehow, yeah, I, I, I really hooked on to the city and um, I wanted to experience it. Yeah. Plus also having this five-year program where you can develop yourself properly and have some lectures at the beginning. It seemed to me the right thing to do, given that I had quite limited experience working abroad and choosing actually what I really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, because in Cambridge, I think it's, it's a much more abbreviated Yeah, it's a three-year program. You don't have any lectures to start off. You decide for your group right away. So you have to be quite, you know, you have to have enough experience to be able to say, okay, yes, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And I wasn't really exposed to lots of choices before that. I really liked neuroscience always. I was obsessed about it. But um, neuroscience is such a complex topic and you need to know so many different things. I knew that I would never get into a neuroscience lab or neuroscience program because I had only biochemistry background. I was working with yeast and, you know, enzyme kinetics and things like that. But Rockefeller has this chance that actually there is no program. So you can still pretend that you are doing biochemistry, but work in a neuroscience lab just to be there and be exposed to the environment. So that's what I did for all the three rotations I did. I was working actually in neuroscience labs, but doing biochemistry, molecular biology, things that I felt, you know, people will still take me seriously (laughs) somehow. And um, I think since then, I've I've been gradually climbing towards new science, Uh even though I'm still not doing it properly. (laughs) I don't know, properly is the right word. But who did you rotate, by by the way? I was with Paul Gringart in my first rotation, and Mary Beth Hatton in my second, and Bob Darnell in the third. So I was doing first really biochemistry, protein biochemistry, and then a lot of cell biology and later RNA biology with Bob. And when you uh, first joined the lab of um, Professor Robert Darnell, uh, what were you um, most interested within the lab? Um, And, you know, we know that you went on to uh, really pioneer this use of a technique called CLIP, which stands for cross-linking and immunoprecipitation to really identify uh, the... Uh, roles of RNA protein complexes um, in um, regulating neuronal function and to really get at how um, specific proteins regulate things like splicing. So, and, and, you know, then I think things just kind of blew up and really, like, worked out tremendously. So how did this whole uh, project. project get yeah. initiated? And, you know, what were you interested? What was uh, Professor Darnell in- interested in? How did this happen? It's a good question, actually. It was a really interesting story. So I was already rotating for a year and a half between Green Garden and Mary Beth's lab. And I was actually doing some kind of a joint PhD project that I, I came up with. And it was already going quite far. In a way, I was very independent. I was supported. It's very weird. Why would I ch- change the lab at that stage? I was already into my second year of the PhD. Part of the reason is that I was always obsessed with systems biology and this kind of comprehensive views of the problem. And that comes a lot to the fact that I was doing lots of arts before starting my science. And um, doing arts, you always learn that you always have to work on a project as a whole, on your painting or whatever. It's one of the first things that you learn in any kind of arts program is somehow how to look at the whole, how to never start with the detail of one part of the image, because then the whole image somehow collapses. I felt that, you know, this very basic concept that you see in the arts, you never learn in science. And it seems like in science, you actually learn the opposite. You learn how to choose your problem and work on it forever and ignore the rest somehow. And somehow I was always trying to figure out how can I get a little bit of what really excited me about the arts, how to get that in the science. 
you know, for somebody who just comes from Slovenia and is already a little bit insecure and not sure whether I can make it, I didn't want to tell to people, look, this is what I want to do. I want to make science in a yeah. way or something like that. Yeah. It sounded crazy for that time. I started working in Gringard Lab partly because he has worked out this interesting signaling pathway where lots of different kinases were connected to this protein DARP32, which was then connected further to lots of different receptor proteins and was some kind of a core in a cluster of different interactions. So I felt maybe that would be a nice way to look at things in a more systematic problem to kind of see how the different things are connected in the cell. But in the end, I was still working on just one of these proteins in the network and trying to figure out what it's actually doing. And I felt it was a little bit too narrow for me, even though, I mean, it sounds horrible because it was a really interesting problem and important and everything. But the genomics revolution was just starting at the time. During my first rotations, the human genome came out, the mouse was coming up, and everybody was talking about it. My kernels were the big deal. And you could see how working with genomic sequences and and nucleic acids and sequencing was going to be something that would be cheaper to obtain data on a larger scale. And I started listening to lectures on microarray technologies at the time, which were amazing. You could really see, you know, you do one experiment and you can see kind of an unbiased overview of the system. That was something that I really wanted to do. I just couldn't hold myself. <laughs> yeah. And you could, I heard from a colleague of mine who was previously also in, in Gringard lab, but then went to Bob's lab for another student, that there was something happening in Bob's lab. There were some developments. They were trying to work out a way to use biochemistry to pull down targets of an RNA binding protein. Yeah. And that, you know, somebody, he was actually telling me, somebody with your background with lots of biochemistry would be the right person to work on a project like this. And I remembered Bob's lecture at his first introductory lectures for students. So every PI from the uh, university had to give a lecture of their work to his first-year students. Yeah. And Bob gave a really good lecture and inspiring, and he talked about his cello and how he <laughs> loves music and all these things. <laughs> so, you know, of course, I got, I really remembered him as a person, and um, somehow I felt like we could, you know, I, I connected with him as a personality. So even though my pro it was no reason for me to switch, my project was going well, I was working great labs and having all the support, I somehow, I think I would say this was a good choice in the end, you know, looking backwards, that I still wanted more. Mm -hmm. You know, I still had some, I saw I was in a great place, so why not do something that I really, you know, do even more that I really wanted to do. And Rockefeller allowed you that, you know, it's like there's few places that actually allow you to keep on following your dreams in a way, your choices. It was a little bit of my American dream experience. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, it worked out in the end. <laughs> Wait, so how you um, had joined Professor Greengard's lab or you, you were still rotating, but then you... Um, Did another yeah. How, how yeah. That so that was, I went on as my third rotation during my second year of the PhD to Bob's lab. And that was uh, fine. Uh, it was so it was problem. a very fluid, like, kind of system. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 That's great. Um, and so um, you mentioned this protein um, called Nova. So um, how did the Darnell lab get interested in this protein? Um, and then um, more broadly, I mean, I love the description of. Um, both how your interests kind of collided with the genomics revolution and also being inspired by art to both see the big picture. So uh, taking that theme, what was known about this uh, big picture theme about splicing in the brain or regulation of uh, mRNA, uh, both in biology and in the brain? And so, um, and, and where did NOVA fit into that? It's <laughs> a good question. So Bob would be a much better person to describe how whole project on NOVA started, yeah. um, but uh, Bob had a very interesting way to get into the RNA biology in the brain, 
where he was starting this, to study these diseases called paraneoplastic neurologic disorders. Uh-huh. And as a medic, he was quite specialized for this disease, which is extremely interesting disease because it connects cancer biology and neurobiology and immunology. Yeah. So you actually develop a neurologic disorder as a result of an immune system infiltrating into the brain and this immune activation happened due to the cancer that was expressing a neuronal protein. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in this case, there's a particular type of cancer that would express NOVA, and then immune system would normally be able to get rid of the cancer mm-hmm. because these neuronal proteins are actually antigens to our immune systems. Immune system recognizes them as foreign because of the blood-brain barrier, right? Uh-huh. Right. So normally, immune system will be able to get rid of this type of cancer, but you develop a very strong immune response against these proteins. We actually used this um, sera from human patients for our biochemistry in Bob's lab. Uh-huh. The first sleep experiments I was doing, I was actually doing with the serum from human patients. Wow. Without any purification, the antibody titers are extremely high. Mm. And um, so due to this extremely high immune response some patients then develop this secondary neurologic disorder. Mm-hmm. And it's still not completely clear how this disorder develops, but over the last years, Bob has really made a lot of progress in that way also. Uh-huh. So, but basically, he had a number of proteins that were all targeted in these disorders and were all RNA-binding proteins, which is interesting. Somehow, RNA-binding proteins seem to be quite common proteins that cancers will express. Yeah. but are not normally expressed outside the brain. They seem to actually help sometimes they actually promote cancer proliferation or somehow are, even though they are normally only in the brain, in cancers, they might actually be part of cancer biology too. Yeah. When I joined, there were three RNA, RNAs known to be regulated by NOVA. And these three RNAs, one of them was NOVA itself, so it regulated its own message. Uh-huh. And two other RNAs were encoding inhibitory neurotransmitters, GABA and glycine receptors, inhibitory neurotransmitter receptors. And somehow it seemed that the whole biology of NOVA had been worked out by them because the f- disease where NOVA is involved leads to defective inhibition. So the patients have this consistent tremor and ataxia, and it was very consistent with loss of neuronal inhibition. Sorry, so this is the cancer, so this is actually a separate disease? This is the neurologic disease. So the cancer, the cancer is not such a big problem because yeah. the cancer is killed by the immune system. Right. It's the neurologic disease that in the end turns out to be the problem for this disease. And, um, but the, it's clear that all the clinical symptoms are connected with loss of neuronal inhibitions, and it was shown before I joined that these two important receptors that are important for the inhibitory synapse are misplaced. Uh-huh. And that was shown also in the mouse that lacked NOVA protein, the knockout mouse. And, and just quickly for our audience, those that don't know about splicing, so this is basically when there's different forms of the RNA molecule, right, that can right. be regulated by the binding of these proteins. Mm-hmm, right. mm-hmm. Yeah, so you can make... Molecules of different lengths you can insert or remove a certain alternative axon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when I joined, actually, it seemed like the biology of NOVA was pretty much clear. And people weren't interested in working with NOVA anymore. Uh-huh. It was a protein that Bob wanted to keep on working on, but he didn't really have anybody in the lab that would wish to work with NOVA. <laughs> because everybody thought, okay, all the big papers have been done, now we should work on new proteins. NOVA is already old story. Yeah. That was kind of the view of NOVA at that point. And um, the reason why I was more interested in NOVA and also the, way, the reason why Bob was interested was because there's part of NOVA that actually localizes outside of the nucleus. Even though it's mainly nuclear proteins, yeah. part of NOVA localizes to the dendrite. And there was some evidence already at that time that there will be some co-localization at the synapse could be involved in some kind of coordination between nuclear control of RNA processing and mRNA localization, which for neurons is, of course, the most interesting aspect of neuronal RNA biology. Right, anything at the synapse or how, how anything, regulating proteins at the synapse must be important for... for exactly. Function, right? yeah. yeah, and this localized control of gene expression 
completely separate machinery there that allows you a different timing and different space-wise control yeah. is something extremely attractive. Both me and Bob, we found you know, that could be the potential for, for further studies of, of NOVA. Nobody really thought much else would come out of splicing. We all felt, okay, splicing is basically old story. We, we, we can use it as a way to just kind of validate the experiments are working, yeah. but we didn't think we'll get much out of it. So we were all pushing more into the other localization, which still remains to be a very, very important and exciting aspect of RNA biology and neurons. Somehow you feel something that is an old story, nothing more to tell, can turn out to be much more interesting, taking most of your energy (laughs) in 15 years. (laughs) Right. And and so maybe you can go into a little more depth about what what you did find with this. So basically you applied this clip technique that we mentioned a little bit earlier, and it gave you some insight, more insight into some of the splicing as well as some of the, I guess, additional targets of NOVA. So I, I was working with a postdoc, Kirk Jensen, who was using this clip technique for another protein in the lab for... HU protein, HUC, HUD. Right, so often a marker for just neurons. Yeah, and those proteins are also targeted in different forms of deep neuroplastic neurologic disorders. And even less is known about those proteins. So those proteins were really non-characterized, which is why Kirk was very interested in those proteins. And he, he's done a little bit of work with NOVA, also with this method before I started, but it didn't seem like it would be working very well with NOVA. So in a way we said, okay, why don't I try working a little bit more with it on NOVA while he's working on HU proteins. And so we were kind of working in parallel. The method basically works in such a way that you immunoprecipitate protein crosslink to RNA and you crosslink the brain tissue so you really preserve the endogenous interactions. Right, so, so for our audience, that's when proteins bind to RNAs and then you can get the antibodies, the immunoprecipitation part, the antibodies bind those proteins then you can identify the RNAs that are bound to those proteins, right? Exactly, yeah. It's quite similar to the CHIP method, where you have the chromatin immunoprecipitation, where you're purifying DNA-bound protein. But here you're purifying RNA that is crosslinked to the protein with UV light, and you develop a protocol to prepare a cDNA library from this RNA. So after you do a very specific purification, actually visualize a protein RNA complex on a gel, you reactively label the RNA, so you can really be 100% sure you only have the RNA that is directly interacting with your protein. Then you get rid of the protein and use those small fragments of RNA that have been cross-linked as a template to prepare your cDNA library. And then you sequence those library. At that time, so this read lengths that we produced at the time were about 50 nucleotides long. It's a pretty short yeah, so that's perfect for high throughput sequencing nowadays. So in a way, the wow. protocol I did, that we developed at the time was perfect for nowadays, you know, the, the, the common technologies used nowadays. But at the time, we didn't have yet high throughput sequencing. So I was doing, doing loads and loads of mini preps and, <laughs> you know, this type of old school experiments. I spent about three months just doing mini preps. And at the time, we also didn't have similar uh, genome browsers. So there were very basic types of mapping algorithms. And there was no way to figure out what are the alternative variants. We had some programs I called were called Spidey or something like that. So oh, yeah, yeah. I love those old <laughs> You had to do everything manually. So it was so very exciting. laborious. <laughs> yeah, but every single sequence I got was so exciting and I was <laughs> so interested and I read everything about the gene for every single sequence that I got. And um, so, you know, that's how I came to 344th sequence after, let's say, three months of just doing mini preps and manually <laughs> mapping yeah. each one individually and reading about every gene. Then after 344th, I um, thought about it a little bit and realized that every sequence I got was a different sequence. So then I started talking to my brother a bit. So my brother is a lot smarter than me. <laughs> he's always been the smart one, and I've always been just there to fool around a bit. So he's also a little bit older than me. And he's doing game theory and, you know, there's lots of computing. So I started talking to him and he said, why don't I just write a little script for you that will tell you how many sequences you have to get before you get some kind of comprehensive idea of what this protein binds. 
So he wrote this program and he told me, oh, it will be somewhere between 50,000 and half a million. Uh-huh. So, so 50,000 and half a million separate transcripts binding to Nova. Separate sequences that I need before I will have any idea about, you know, what this protein actually binds or kind of <laughs> good coverage of the system. So, so just to back up a second, so the idea was that you were having all these sequences, but you thought maybe some of them were overlapping and that you would... I was hoping, it. actually, we were all expecting that we will have around 10 different RNAs. By <laughs> because orders of magnitude. Right, that's what proteins <laughs> yeah. do. You do mass yeah. spec and you see, okay, there's about 10 primary protein interactors of my protein. So uh-huh. yeah. that's roughly, we thought, is going to be the same for the RNA. So I was getting 340 and I still was keeping getting more and I was so excited about every single one and I thought, okay, I'm cutting to the end of my story somehow. <laughs> but you know what my brother did was said, okay, give me the number of the genes, tell me how long they are, show me where your sequences lie in these genes and I will tell you, you know, just by simple script that tells, okay, you're taking balls out of a bag and saying when will I start getting the same ball again so that uh-huh. I can get a good idea, okay, how many balls are there? So. There's a simple probability. It's right. simple probability. Quote, unquote, quote, unquote. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, it was a lot more than I expected. You know, when he told me, I went to Bob and said, oh, my brother is taking and telling I have to have at least 50,000 sequences before <laughs> we can make any conclusions. <laughs> And Bob said, oh, forget it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so what did you think at that time? So were you like, oh, no, or did you? So basically what you were starting to see is that you're getting a a huge, basically, map of of, um, binding things. So so what did you, at that point, decide to do with all of this information? So there was one one thing was interesting. There was one RNA where we kept getting actually the same sequences on the same position, one single RNA. And that was an RNA that is a non-coding RNA. And nowadays, when we are getting the high throughput sequencing data, it still remains to be 10% of all reads from Nova clip still pile up in this single non-coding RNA. Still remains to be fully um, sorted out, but does it, we did find that Nova regulates splicing of this non-coding RNA. So in a way, at least we had one. And mm-hmm. But then it was a non-coding RNA and nothing was known about it. So it was a bit frustrating at that time to see, okay, how can I make a story out of this non-coding RNA? Right, Not non-coding RNA being something that doesn't actually give rise to a protein. Yeah. yeah. And this was, you found it over and over again by every, you know, every whatever frequency of time of doing a mini prep, you'd get this sequence again. Exactly. So that was at least something I felt okay, but it was uh-huh. not the same sequence. It was an overlapping region around uh-huh. that uh-huh. binding okay. site. So it really, I was very confident, okay, that binding site seems to be really important for this protein or a pri- primary binding site. But for all of the other sequences, I never got the same binding site again. I got, there were maybe 10 other genes, I'm, I don't know exact number, but 10 to 20 other genes where we got more than one sequence in the same gene, but usually very far apart. But then we said, okay, to make this story somehow manageable, let's look at those genes where we got at least two sequences in the same gene. And those genes all tend to do something with the synapse, which was something that already started to turn more into a proper story. And then we realized that one of them was a protein that is a scaffolding protein for inhibitory synapses, Jeffrin. And this protein interacts with both GABA and glycine receptor. And we thought, okay, let's check what's happening. This protein, one of the sequences was close to an alternative exon. So we checked that exon. Indeed, the splicing change of that exon was completely black and white. It was a lot bigger than any of the changes we've seen previously for the other receptors. So for the receptors, we had about 10% of a change in, in the inclusion of the exon. Mm-hmm. Here, the change was 90%. It was like something going from nothing into complete inclusion. Wow. So that was really shocking because we didn't expect there will be a lot more changes because we thought the whole story is explainable yeah. Yeah. Um, through previous data. But it was nice to see actually another RNA in the same pathway having, you know, again, a big kind of something started to fall together through that. So you actually did find something new with the new technique. And uh, is it always this way? So does NOVA always uh, uh, cause the inclusion of exons, or can it go different directions? 
Right. So that was then the other thing. So this previous work suggested that NOVA mainly represses inclusion. And also, this Jeffrey RNA was actually another example of that, where NOVA was repressing inclusion. And that was actually general thought that proteins like NOVA, which are in the class of HNRMP proteins, were always referred to as splicing repressors. If you use the reviews, you would read, okay, there's splicing repressors, which are HNRMPs, and then splicing enhancers like SR proteins. And usually, proteins were classified into groups depending on, no, this is what this protein does. But that was always based on a couple of target RNAs and a few RNAs, like model systems and very limited number of targets. So in a, what, what I started to realize when we started to validate more of these splicing targets through other clip tags, so this, even though we had a limited number of sequences, when we looked for alternative exons that were nearby, we managed to find now several more of those mispliced RNAs and realized that there could be a lot more RNA targets for NOVA than we thought initially. Mm-hmm. But what we did realize is that some RNAs were changed in one direction and some in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And from there on, an interest arose in me to try to understand why is it actually that NOVA can do both things, even though it was supposed to be a repressor of splicing. Okay. Is this direct? Or is initially we thought, okay, maybe some of these targets are just noise or cellular stress or something indirect that has nothing to do with NOVA binding. Mm -hmm. And because we had a limited number of sequences, we couldn't really work this out. Once I had this initial NOVA data and we had this nice pathway coming through, Bob was talking about it at conferences and the editor of science came to him and was excited about this. (laughs) So somehow I was was completely surprised when... Bob was telling me, okay, let's just publish this, editor is interested, let's just get it out. I was expecting this would be still like years of work to <laughs> everything fit together and <laughs> yeah. explain why NOVA can do both functions. But basically, I from there on, I stopped doing CLIP and uh-huh. for the next five years, I was doing everything else to try to understand why can NOVA do both effects? Why can NOVA both enhance and repress exon inclusion? And how can it achieve that single protein? And, and okay. And then, uh, so obviously this is telling us that definitely this comprehensive R, uh, data was giving you a lot to pursue. Um, and, and so I, I want to continue along those lines and maybe tell us what you found about why NOVA uh, can do both of these things. But so, but just pause for a moment. So many people, usually they go on to a postdoc after they finish up, say, a science paper um, and uh, at some other lab. But you actually decided to stay uh, with uh, Bob Darnell and uh, continue your work. And, and so what was your motivation uh, behind doing that? Were you, did you just want to con- uh, continue to work on these problems that had come up? So first of all, I had a really good thesis committee. One of the members of my thesis committee was um, asking me if, if this was really convincing to me, if I was basically convinced by this clip data that it seemed like NOVA was primarily uh, regulating synaptic proteins. But as I told you, my brother said we need to have 50,000 targets before we can be confident. And so... I was saying, yes, I'm not completely sure that it's really, you know, that's the whole story. So how could you really, you know, put enough data together to be convinced? So it was Shai Shaham, who is very experienced in genetics. He's worked on also this first C. elegans apoptosis proteins and discoveries. And he gave me a really good advice. It's like, if you want to be confident in something, you have to have two completely independent data sets and find the intersect between them and show that you know you you can get to a similar conclusion from two completely independent en- angles, mm-hmm. and also keep Great advice. Back. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, basically, they were telling me it doesn't matter if you have science paper, whatever you have, mm-hmm. you have to be convinced into what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And um, the way I I realized I wasn't ready to graduate with that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It was okay. I was lucky that somehow things worked out and everybody was interested. But um, it was a beginning of something, but it was not really conclusive. So, first of all, I wanted to know and go more, get more data, be confident about it. And also the committee was saying, okay, I don't think we are satisfied. You know, you have to convince us into this. Mm -hmm. So, uh, at that time, when I was finishing the CLIP study, 
Bob started working with Affymetrics. They were developing these new types of arrays that could monitor splicing. Before, most of the arrays were based on the probes uh, annealing to the three prime UTRs. They were just monitoring gene expression in general. But now Affymetrics was playing with probes designed on splice junctions or alternative axons. So Bob was involved in the initial program of testing those arrays. And um, so they came to us, gave us the results. Somehow they were not very excited about these arrays that were designed to monitor splice junctions. Mm. And they produced the data, they gave it to us, but they said, we are not going to pursue it anymore. Mm -hmm. Somehow the data was lying in the lab. And um, Bob was saying, okay, anybody wants to play with the data, feel free to do it. Mm -hmm. So I spent... I have absolutely zero scripting experience. <laughs> um, I'm completely horrible. Even though you would imagine I would know quite a lot by now, but I'm still <laughs> doing some basic R scripts, but that's it, basically. Uh -huh. yeah. It's very embarrassing. <laughs> but um, my brother is very good in it, and we were always like that, that whenever I needed something, I would ask my brother for yeah. computational but stuff. Was he a, was it's he a very a, cool family yeah. relationship. Was, was I've never a, heard of, you know, turning to one's <laughs> brother. As, uh, yeah, that's great. That's, that's really was cool. Was he in New York also, or were you guys communicating? He, he's in Amsterdam. I mean, oh, at the wow. time he was fully in Amsterdam. Now he's half-half, working half in Ljubljana, half in Amsterdam. Um, but, yeah, he was also, I think, finishing up his PhD at the time. Mm -hmm. And somehow I was, I was not yet solid enough in what I was doing to go to a proper bioinformatician and say, look, I think we could do this and that and that. Whereas to your brother, you can always say, look, could we just try this and try that? Yeah. And I was playing around with the data first on my own and just using some tables and sorting and merging and stuff. <laughs> that already showed me that actually there is a lot in that data and that I can pick up those RNAs that already validated through the clip. Mm -hmm. And so it did look like actually data was not as bad as you would think. Mm -hmm. And so then I said to my brother, look, this would be just one day of work. Just write something very, very simple for me to sort this data a little bit easier. Turned out it took him months of work. To <laughs> because he's a much more, you know, he wanted to do it properly. So yeah. it took months to write a proper script for analysis uh -huh. of this microarray data, even though, you know, he's not a bioinformatician. This was the last bioinformatics project he did and then <laughs> went back to his game theory and <laughs> but um, it was really nice it worked very well and yeah. we could get very good validation rate yeah. and yeah. then through that I first became really confident that NOVA does regulate very specific mm. set of synaptic proteins this network fell out so beautifully and this was exactly what I wanted to do somehow do some completely comprehensive strategy, but then get a biological story out of it just by seeing that there's coherence in the data. And so that was nice. And then through that, once we had a really good microarray data set, very well validated, and at the same time I had clip data to tell me about what types of site and sequences NOVA binds, yeah. I had now two independent data sets, and then I said, okay, this looks like really nice. Now I can finally start integrating this. Mm -hmm. By right. then I was already finishing my PhD. Mm -hmm. So then I thought, okay, I finally got to this point. I cannot just leave now. It was just perfect stage to start putting it together and really answer this point about why can the protein enhance and repress splicing at the same time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So then I decided to stay as a postdoc for another couple of years or so. And, there, is uh, your brother on that paper? <laughs> so he's definitely, you know, we are, like, he's the second author on this. <laughs> wow. Wow. So, yeah, you, you will find this Ule Ule <laughs> in the pages, yeah, definitely. And what did you think about how the protein was both regulating inclusion and exclusion of exons? I mean, if you have this protein that's kind of sitting on the RNA, how is it sitting on the RNA and then inviting uh, inclusion of an exon in one case and then structurally, like, how is it doing the opposite in another case? Yeah, yeah so I mean, the principal idea, if you read the reviews at that time, was that splicing is extremely cooperative, that it is not regulated by a single protein ever. Yeah. So kind of the standard model would be that, yes, of course, from one array to another, we might do different things, because it recruits a number of additional proteins that are bound in the vicinity. So it kind of depends on what is all the set of 
cooperative interactions that are involved or competitive interactions or so forth. So it depends very much on the other proteins in the vicinity. That was the first idea. Yeah. But that means that model was basically saying there's a huge amount of complexity and we won't be able to understand it unless we have data on dozens of different proteins where they all sit and have like some very, very complex kind of splicing code, which is something that has definitely been done until now by people like Brendan Frey at the University of Toronto, for example. But yeah. I thought, okay, maybe there are some simple things we can do first. And especially because we had this data from CLIP where we can really narrow down the position of binding, I thought, what if the position could explain part of the story? If you can just say one protein, but just compare where does it actually bind, where it does one thing or where it does the other thing. And because CLIP data were still limited at that point, we didn't have that coverage that we wanted. I went back to sequence, the genomic sequence. And this was also a nice coincidence because just as we were finishing up this microarray paper, there was an email sent around Rockefeller campus by a guy who was a computational, who was working the computational support of the university. And somehow there was nothing for him to do. <laughs> they, were, they were thinking of, you know, basically of his job ending. And he just sent an email around saying, look, if anybody has any computational project to do in the lab, let me know so that I can keep my job. <laughs> I mean, the simplistic terms wasn't that simple. But basically, you know, he was really happy to work with people. And so I just walked over to him. I said, look, I would like to look at genomic sequence. Could you write some scripts? And so then we continued like that. So instead of my brother, now I had another person to work with who was now fully dedicated and we have to figure out how to find binding sites that are not contiguous. So with NOVA, we know that it binds very degenerate sequence with binds of uh, sequences that are only four nucleotides long. So imagine words of four letters and even yeah. those words can be quite degenerate. You don't need to have a specific letter at each position. So, so basically it can be a slightly promiscuous binding. It doesn't always bind exactly the same word. True. A variation True. here, a variation there. True. And these four-letter words with all this promiscuity, it happens every 64 nucleotides in the genome. Mm -hmm. So that will not tell you very much. But what we knew is that NOVA increases its affinity if you have more than one of these letters in close proximity on the RNA. And based on what we had in the CLIP data, we could make a model of what would be the approximate type of proximity and number of these sites. So we would use the, the NOVA as a little bit of a training set. Again, we even didn't have enough of this CLIP data to make a proper training data set. Mm -hmm. We had to go back and combine information from in vitro binding experiments, from some reporter essay uh, work that was done in the lab by another PhD student at the time, mm -hmm. a dredge, and clip data, so that we could combine enough information to say, okay, this is what we think will be the NOVA binding site criteria that we should use. Mm -hmm. And then Shuning, who was the guy writing the script, somehow implemented all that, looked for the binding site around these alternative axons that were regulated, and we just checked whether the position of these predicted sites will now be different if you're looking at enhanced or repressed axons. Mm -hmm. And indeed, we were surprised to find that the, the positions were very different, mm. and it became even more specific if we took at, looked at conservation, mm -hmm. because it was quite surprising that between mouse and human, 97% of the binding sites are conserved. If we are looking at the binding sites that are relevant, that are close to these alternative axons, and even to fish, 50% are conserved. So this high conservation was very helpful to be able to filter down to those fun functionally relevant sites. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's what we then used to come up with this concept of an RNA splicing map, mm -hmm. where you can summarize this position-dependent activity of a protein based on a you know, summarized map that represents all the target transcripts. And it was a very simplistic, very, very simple result. And it was really the simplicity of it that was surprising. Yeah. Many professors um, have a track where they sort of have gone to do their PhD and then a multi-year postdoc and then right. become a professor. And you sort of just jumped into 
um, being a professor right away. Right. Um, so after briefly staying at Rockefeller, you went on to UCLA or UCLA, <laughs> UCL. Sorry, um, started your own lab. So yeah. Uh, what was that like? And uh, were you excited? Were you nervous? So I was very nervous, but also didn't start right away as a professor oh, okay. at UCL. So I had a seven-year period in between at LMB in Cambridge. Oh. So LMB MRC is the place where Watson and Crick, for example, did their uh, first X-ray analysis. And you have lots of amazing history in there. So that was definitely a very, very unnerving experience. <laughs> Places like this, you have all these photos of previous Nobel Prize people in the entrance. If I, I didn't really look for jobs. It was a coincidence uh, that I met a guy at a conference, uh, huh. Simon Bullock, who was another young PI that just started at the time. And uh-huh. he told me, look, there is... Um, Advertise, advert online finishing tomorrow, why don't you apply? Because I think they don't have lots of applicants so far. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> actually, I was still, I, where was I at that time? I'm thinking I applied, I think I was just at the beginning of my postdoc when I applied. Uh-huh. And it was really just for curiosity to see how this whole system works of job uh-huh. applications. So I sent my application, wrote it in a day, not in <laughs> hard about it and turns out somehow I got in and <laughs> it was all through a coincidence I think there were a few people that were quite interested at uh, LMB in genomics and mm-hmm. it's kind of more comprehensive approaches to studying RNA biology mm-hmm. and uh, it was definitely for me a very formative experience to be at LMB mm-hmm. and uh, I was working in a structural studies department so mm-hmm. in a way not really working on my home turf um, somehow now I was entering in a very, very specific field that has a very long tradition and history of the way that science is being done. Uh-huh. And so it was very, very different. We'd like to, I guess, ask our final big science question as a combination of you know, uh, directions you've pursued in recent years and um, big questions that have come out of your lab recently, and then also uh, ask for a preview of your upcoming talk, because um, that might... Um, tie those questions together, and we, with you know, we spend uh, a long time talking about your graduate work and outlining the field, which I think was really great, and will serve as great background to uh, to the talk. But you know, if you want to talk quickly um, about maybe a preview of the upcoming talk and uh, your lab's recent interest, and then we'll go on to our rapid fire last section of the interview. All right, okay. So basically, that will continue nicely to the, your previous question. So I was yeah. working in this department of structural studies. Coming into it with this type of more broad interest into how to use systematic approaches to map protein R interactions and understand their function. But now I was in the department focusing on the very core problems in structural biology, really pushing the field forward. And the way that medical research council institutes work in UK is that you really have to fit into your department. You, you have to be, the whole department has to somehow work as a unit, as a one single lab. So I was trying to find a way how to do something structural as I was there. But it yeah. took me a very long time. And um, we were developing this method, which I will talk about in Stanford, called HiClip now, which is kind of a new development of the iClip that looks at hybrid reads that tell you information about what are the RNA duplexes that are bound by RNA-binding proteins. Yeah. And this then gives you insights into full-length RNA structure, the secondary structure mainly, but is the missing bit of the structure that is not a, you cannot yet gain it through other experimental or computational methods. Right, so basically looking at the sequence doesn't tell you how the RNA, which is like a string, and how it folds and all this. Exactly, especially when you're looking at long-range contacts in the RNA, so contacts between different RNA molecules. Those are the types of problems that are very difficult to model computationally. So in a way, this was very nice for us that we could actually contribute something from a more structural perspective. But again, knowing this type of the missing piece of the puzzle of RNA structure, we can come back to the function of RNA-binding proteins, to the assembly of higher-order complexes in in a very new direction. So this is what I will speak about, and um, this was the work of my PhD student, Yuchiro Sugimoto, who was actually an engineering um, uh, undergraduate, so he brought a very new view to the lab also. 
and was a wonderful person to work with. We're really excited to hear about this. Yeah, and hopefully we can't we wait. <laughs> thank you, and thank yes. you very much for this discussion. Yeah, it's- Before we uh, end, we have a series of three uh, quick rapid-fire questions just to end the interview on a light note. Okay, so the first one we always like to ask is, if you could go back in time and speak to yourself, uh, Yerne, as a graduate student, what advice would you give yourself? Just do the same as what you did. <laughs> 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 yeah. I think it's, yeah, I, I think follow your card ever <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah based on um you know how things turned out i think that's see, pr- pretty appropriate like pretty advice. <laughs> um, yeah. so the second is what is one fun fact that we don't know about slovenia but should huh. definitely hiking in the mountains is a dangerous but exciting experience People die sometimes, but oh, wow. it's only the tourists who don't know how to respect the weather. <laughs> it's a tiny little country. It's still very, very mystical and lots to discover. And then our last question is, so uh, for our audience, we're actually on Skype right now, and we can see your like user icon picture, and we can't quite figure out what it is, so I wanted to ask, what is this? This looks like some kind of sketch. <laughs> it's actually funny, yeah. So when we were having these retreats as an undergraduate, as every year PhD students at Rockefeller go to some place and then just talk, present science to each other. Uh-huh. And there was one evening when um, somebody was secretly collecting doodles after these retreats. And I like doodling a lot. So I was uh, somehow, I don't know how it happened, but I was um, the winner of the doodling competition and the third prize winner too. Mm-hmm. Uh, somehow I thought it were two different people. Anyway, <laughs> this, 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 this one was uh, the prize winner of the doodle. I'm proud of that <laughs> biggest achievement in life. <laughs> I see. So art came back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us. Yeah, me. this is really terrific. Thank you, you so much for doing it. Yeah, this. hope yeah. to meet you uh, soon. Right. Yes. Absolutely. Can't wait to meet you when you uh, speak at Stanford. All right. Yes. All right. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us next week when our guest will be Tom Manietis, Professor and Chair of Biochemistry and Molecular Biophysics at Columbia University. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. Neurotalk was founded by Erica Senior, Mark Padalina, and Forrest Coleman. This episode was produced by David Lipton, Louis Jem, Eddie Alberon, Andrew Gundren, Viet Nguyen, and Ada Yi. Adam Fuchel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all past episodes of Neurotalk and our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, as well as articles about everything neuroscience, by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org. Spelt N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. This is Neurotalk. I'm Viet Nguyen.